This morning, we're starting in the book of Galatians and uh, looking forward to that. Uh, historically at St. Luke's, we've, we've done a few books of the Bible. I've tried to do one every year and we've been going for 10 years and I've done six maybe. So we haven't quite done one every year. Got distracted by other things along the way. But we have done Ecclesiastes. Uh, we have done Revelation. So we choose the hard one. Oh, we've done Jonah. We've done Ecclesiastes, Revelation, Jonah. Uh, we've done John. We've done James. James was cool. Uh, and then we spent a year doing the Sermon on the Mount, which is only three chapters. Uh, so that took a little bit longer. Galatians is six chapters. So it's good to kick off a two-year series this morning uh, in the book of Galatians. Um, every verse, word by... No, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to be about six or seven weeks. Uh, I'm going to do a couple. Uh, Sean's going to do one in a couple of weeks' time. And yeah, see what Galatians has for us. Why do we do this? Uh, as Christians, we have this um, conviction that somehow going into the text, going into the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, either, either or all together, is good for us and healthy for us. And there's something in there that somehow is meaningful and life-giving for our lives today, which is kind of crazy. It's a kind of crazy assumption. And it's something of an assumption, but I'll, I'll explain a few things in a minute. Uh, what's the Bible? The Bible is essentially humans recording, um, narrating, expounding on an ever-growing understanding of God. The, the text is not flat. The Bible is not flat. We don't, every verse is not equal. There's an arc to the story. There's a progress to the story. Obviously, we, we work our way towards Christ, who is this full revelation of what God's like. So it progresses. But it's just the story of people trying to write down their experiences and their stories and their understanding and things that they kind of think are going to happen. And yet, somehow we declare that to be God's revelation, or one of God's revelations to us, that points us towards Christ and tells the story of the world that we live in. Supposedly. Now, I say supposedly because then we've got to go, well, really? Yes or no? Well, we've got 2,000 years of church history of people diving into the Bible, believing for it to be life-giving. And then I think we've got the witness and testimony of 2,000 years worth of people discovering that it really is life-giving and it's shaped their lives and it's shaped human history. It's shaped the last 2,000 years of human history in life-giving and incredible ways kind of thing. Uh, so we end up moving beyond supposedly and we go, the Bible is one of this, it's this beautifully mysterious gift from God that is humans telling a story but somehow inspired by God in such a way that we can move in and out and through the text and read our own lives and read the world around us and actually find Life and hope and comfort and encouragement and rebuke and, and all sorts of different things. So uh, we do that this time. Uh, scriptures divinely authorized and commissioned human witness to God's work of creation and redemption. Especially as these culminate in the person and the work, work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to tackle Galatians with that in mind. I guess asking, what does Galatians have to say to us in the 21st century? I was thinking about doing Hebrews, Hebrews or Galatians. Uh, Hebrews has got more chapters, so that's just instantly challenging. Uh, that's why we'll never do Psalms. It's like 150. Though we could just do one of them because they just repeat 150 times. No, that's not quite true. There's three or four or five different types of Psalms. We could do it like that. That would work. I've always not wanted to do Psalms because it's like, there's 150 chapters. That's going to take too long. But there's up Psalms and down Psalms and in the middle Psalms. So we could actually just do it like that. 
There you go, just making some notes for myself. Uh, we were going to do Hebrews or Galatians. I was going back and forth between the two because there's some cool stuff in Hebrews, but there's some complicated stuff as well. And then I thought, oh, we'll do Galatians, six chapters, more manageable. Uh, we can bite that off. So we're, we're going to dive into Galatians, asking what it might have to say to us today. All right, so let's start. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. Um, that's one of the things you learn, and if you do lots of study, that you start at the beginning, not the end. So there you go, that's, this is just all paying off. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. Here we go. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters that are with him, or with me, to the churches in Galatia. And he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us over from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We're going to start there, those five verses. We're even going to start really particularly with grace and peace, because I say that all the time. What am I getting at when I talk about grace and peace? Well, I didn't make it up. They found it in the Bible somewhere. There's, there's a few things going on. And central to the whole understanding of Galatians is Paul starts with grace and peace. He ends up finishing with grace and peace and mercy. But there's this idea, this, let me explain grace and peace to you. Now, in light of that, and he got actually, you know, to let the cat out of the bag, he ends up, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's taking you off down this garden path? Grace and peace. Remember grace and peace. You don't need to. So let's start with grace and peace. The trouble with putting a sermon series like this together, I've got Dave over my shoulder all the time saying, just find obscure, interesting facts from the first century. That's all we really want to know. We don't want to know what it means for our lives. We want to know obscure things that archaeologists dug up. I'm like, no, we don't, Dave. Stop it. So we're going to work through Galatians, but we're working through it in regards to what does it mean for us today? So grace, grace and peace. The grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to understand what grace is, uh, we need to figure out what grace meant in Paul's first century context. We don't open a dictionary. Uh, if you're ever wanting to know what a Bible idea or concept is, it's not, oh, I wonder what grace is. I'll look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary. It's like, no, that's going to give you a definition of an English word which may or may not have anything to do with the ideas that are happening here in the text. You've got to do a little bit more homework to find out the idea. So when, when Paul talks about grace, what's Paul talking about when he writes about grace? How did people in this context understand grace? What, what was their perspective on grace? Let's figure that out then make sense for us of what grace might mean. So, uh, we'll start with grace. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, which is basically all the Roman Empire uh, around the Mediterranean, across to the Middle East, all, it's all occupied by Rome, basically. Uh, that first century world uh, for the Roman citizens, but for the Jewish inhabitants as well, occupied by, by Rome. Uh, the social makeup of society is a little bit different to the world that we live in. Uh, their society is organized around relationships of reciprocity. Relationships of reciprocity. Uh, mutual dependence. You could kind of say, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. There's a, it's a little bit like that, but it's more complicated than that. But we'll unpack it. But it's these relationships of reciprocity. And you have, it's, it's the world of patrons and clients. Of benefactors and beneficiaries. Of honor and of shame. It's a world where some people have lots of stuff, 
other people don't have much stuff. And yep, that's the world we live in today as well in many ways. But it's, there's particular ways that society organised themselves in light of that in a first century context. Uh, basically what would happen was better placed individuals would help out lesser placed individuals. Help them with resource or access to money or to food or to permission to do this or they're looking to do that. The, the benefactor would help the beneficiaries, would open doors. Uh, give resource, create possibilities, uh, sponsor, whatever it might be, benefactors sponsoring beneficiaries. As a result of that, the beneficiaries, those that had received grace or received favor, it's the, in the English it's the same, grace and favor, received the grace, the favor of these benefactors, would return to them honor and praise and would speak well of them, maybe vote for them in the upcoming elections, uh, would never badmouth them, would stand up for them in society, would, would um, distribute great reputation upon them and honours them. It was just the way that it worked. The beneficiaries would give and then uh, the benefactors would give, the beneficiaries would return honour and esteem and glory and speak well and create a good name and live their life in a way that brought honour to the person, not shame to the person. Uh, the very wealthy at times would extend grace, would extend favour to the city. They might build an art gallery or an aqueduct or uh, build a temple or something like that. And as a result, they would receive perpetual honour from the city. There'd be, annually, there'd be some celebration of the, the things that they'd entrusted or invested into the city. Rich would help the poor, but rich would help the rich. Poor would help the poor. Villages would extend grace and favour to other villages, poorer villages. They'd extend grace and favour to each other within the context of the village. Old mate sheep stuck in a well, they all get together and lend a hand kind of thing. That's extending grace, that's extending favour. And as a result, that person becomes a beneficiary and would, ex- would, would, would give honour back to that person, would speak well of that person, would hold that person in high regard. It was the way that society built and developed relationships. Uh, None of this was considered burdensome. It was one of the chief bonds of society at the time. It formed and established relationships. We can understand a power dynamic, and there were power dynamics, where suddenly somebody's in their pocket kind of thing, and now you have to do this for them. We, we can picture that and imagine that. But it was less about that. It was more about you actually needed that. If you didn't have a lot, you needed benefactors to, to make it through life. And if you had a lot, well, you'd want beneficiaries who would bring honor to you it was it's kind of different to how we live and we can see the corrupt nature of it and there would have been corrupt nature to it but it's also just kind of the social norms at the time uh, the obligation to show gratitude was not burdensome uh, but a delight to be remembered and acted upon as a constant renewal of relationship a constant bond that would keep society kind of functioning and working Uh, Here we've got on the screen one of the cultural icons on the day. And this is in Spain and Italy and Greece, all the way across to the Middle East. This This is the three goddesses of grace, or the three sisters of grace who would dance together. Uh, One represents the disposition to show favor. And they're held hand in hand. One represents the gift, the grace, the favor that is given. And then the third represents that gift given back to the gift giver. And it's this dance that kind of circles around. Uh, Roman philosopher Seneca lived at the same time of Christ. He he wrote this about this dance of grace. He said, there's one for bestowing a benefit, another for receiving it, and a third for returning it. Why do the sisters dance hand in hand in a ring which returns upon itself? For the reason that a benefit passing in its course from hand to hand returns nevertheless to the giver. 
The beauty of the whole is destroyed if the course is anywhere broken. And it has most beauty if it is continuous and maintains an uninterrupted succession. They are young because the memory of benefits ought not to grow old. The maidens wear flowing robes and these two are transparent because the benefits desire to be seen. And there's other images of the dancing sisters that are less appropriate for church. So I didn't use those ones. Uh, but it's this, this, this dance of grace. This dance of grace. And it, you, we can see, we can picture, we can imagine. The, the, the reason that it works is because it's unbroken. Beneficiary, benefit, benefactor. And it returns its course. And it creates this flow to society. creates relationships in society. Uh, initiating the circle dance was a matter of choice on behalf of the giver. So the benefactor decides to offer a gift, grace, favour. But it was also a choice for the person to accept it as well. A little bit like you know, asking someone to dance at the school prom or something like that. One asks, the other one can say yes or no. Uh, you can't say yes though and just keep sitting in your seat. That don't work. You say yes, you now have to stand up and to participate in the dance. So you could say yes or no to the gift that's given. But if you say yes, you're choosing to then participate in the dance. You know, you know how it works. They know how it works. Old mate turns up, you know, his Ugandan auntie's died with 17 million and all you've got to do is send these bank account details and it'll definitely come through to you. We've got no, no one to inherit it. They knew if you say yes, you then enter into a... A relationship of obligation. There's a certain rhythm to it. They, they understood that, and that's what they would do. Uh, return grace with gratitude. Return grace with gratitude. The beauty of the whole destroyed of the courses anywhere broken. Failure to show gratitude was regarded as, a, as supremely disgraceful. So in an honor-shame society, it was a shameful thing not to return Gratitude to, to not return gratitude was, was a shameful thing. It was a, a cardinal social and ethical sin. You, you, just wouldn't, you just wouldn't do that. Well, for Paul, and this is where we're heading into Galatians, for Paul, one of the problems with humanity is that humanity has received grace from God, but has not returned the gratitude to God that is due. Humanity receives the grace that is first of all the gift of life all creation this beautiful blue green planet that we live on is is creator god has gifted humanity with us but humanity has failed to return the type of gratitude the faithful obedience the glory to god that should be returned to god and paul sees that as someone of his times as incredibly shameful a cardinal sin not to return the grace to god that has been given to us He writes about this in Romans chapter 1. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul's referring to the various idols that different cultures have created. The wonder of God's evidence in creation and yet you're carving out idols that look like elements of creation as worship. That, that's, 
That's not to return loyalty and honor to the one that is the great benefactor. That's, you've, you've broken the dance of grace. This is not right. What's amazing, though, when we talk about amazing grace, is that rather than act swiftly and decisively to avenge slighted honor, which would have been fully justified, that's how it worked in the first century context that Paul's writing it. The benefactor receives, uh, benefactor offers grace and favor and gifts. The beneficiary goes, thank you very much. But then if the beneficiary does not return honor, if the beneficiary speaks ill or is uncharitable or doesn't support, well, the benefactor had the resource to deal with that. And that would be what was expected. But we talk about God offering grace upon grace. Rather than act swiftly to discharge justice, what does God do? God offers grace upon grace the wonder of all creation we could track through israel's history we could talk about the law and we could talk about the tabernacle and the temple and the prophets and all these gifts throughout history but let's just go the gift of creation grace upon grace christ comes in the flesh god doesn't act swiftly to bring justice but rather uh, rather lavishes himself upon humanity in the in the most lavish display of love and self-giving possible this is what paul writes grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the very will of God our Father. God extends grace upon grace. The favor of God lavished upon human beings in Christ. Not God, uh, not Christ mediating between sinners and an angry God, but Christ's self-giving love as the full manifestation and revelation of the very heart of God for humanity. Love. Paul kind of puts it like this in Galatians 2.20. He writes in regards to Christ, I live my life in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Grace has been extended. Gratitude has not been returned. God doesn't act harshly. Rather, God extends grace upon grace in the gift of Christ Jesus who gives himself for us. Other writings, Paul says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is grace upon grace. God's grace is Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God. Extended to us. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Defeating sin and death. Redeeming us from the curse. Securing the blessing of the Holy Spirit that leads us into all righteousness. Transforming us to become more and more like Christ. Thus we can say like Paul will say in a few verses time. This is no longer I that lives but Christ who lives in me. Grace upon grace. The grace of Christ. that Such that it's no longer I that lives but Christ who lives in me as I put my faith and trust in Christ. There's ideas in that. Uh, ideas of um, when trust and we trust our lives to Christ, we're submerged into Christ. Or Christ is submerged into us. Very Christ within us, the hope of glory. The idea of uh, putting Christ on as a garment, cloaking ourselves in Christ. The righteousness of Christ now ours, cloaking ourselves in, in there. Christ alive within us. All, it, all of which means that we ourselves in, in that way somehow mysteriously are awakened to Christ in a qualitatively different kind of way. 
heard about this and talked about this, but there's this moment of entrusting my life to Christ. And in doing that, I'm submerged into Christ. I'm cloaked in Christ. I come alive to Christ in a qualitatively different kind of way. My eyes have been opened to see and to hear and to know Christ within the hope of glory. So we can say like Paul does, it's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. And they all begin with ah, without even trying. Reconciled to God. Restored, redeemed, reborn, relaunched into life. These are all these ideas that come as we learn to live in Christ. Christ live in us. So God is the great benefactor and we are the beneficiaries. The benefit is the life of Christ given for us. We respond by trusting in the full sufficiency of Christ's death to defeat sin and death. To secure salvation. To open the door to the Holy Spirit. To transform and empower us to live as Christ has called us to live. Our affirmation that Jesus is the trustworthy and reliable mediator of God's grace. God's agent of reconciliation. Such that we receive the gift, the favor of God, which is Christ, and return gratitude to God. All honor, all glory, all praise, all allegiance unto Christ, to God the Father. Christ's life given and our lives given back. How do you show gratitude back to the one who gives his life for you it's to return your life to Christ this is the grace of God extended towards us so we say grace and peace brothers and sisters grace and peace grace upon grace amazing grace God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us Grace and peace right at the start of Galatians. Grace and peace and mercy right at the end. The middle bit, because you've probably read Galatians, so the middle bit is, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? This is grace and peace. This is grace that, that God's disposition towards you is that of grace and love and generosity and mercy and faithfulness. That's his disposition. Then his gift is Christ who would come and give his life for you that you would be reconciled. That's the grace and that brings peace. And then the next two chapters are like, and you want to add circumcision to that? Why? That makes no sense. There's more to it, and we'll unpack that in the coming weeks. Of all the things to add to grace and peace, that? That's silly. Don't do that. That's that's the abbreviated version. Yeah, we do that. We add, not that, but other things. We get this right, then we'll begin to... We'll understand the argument that Paul is making as the rest of Galatians unfold. Grace and peace. This is the grace and peace of God extended to you. Uh, Grace is the love of God. Grace is the God's the creator of the universe that gives life. Grace is that God comes in the flesh to be present to us, to dwell with us, to give his life on our behalf. Our great benefactor, our patron, gives freely. Peace is the Greek word here, but it builds on the Hebrew idea of shalom. 
right relationship with God, with self, with each other, with the world around us. It's, come, it's being put back together as it's meant to be. And peace allows you to, to rest securely. To be without angst. To trust the righteousness of Christ as your own. That I'm, I'm in right standing before God. Ah, the peace that comes with that. Grace and peace. The peace that comes with that. The grace and peace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's making all things new. So we say grace and peace, my brothers and sisters. Grace and peace. I say it at the end of every gathering. But it's not, there's, there's ideas behind these little words, big ideas behind these little words. Stability and pilgrimage, that's the Latin up there. Grace and peace, my brothers and sisters. Stay stable in your journey. As you go from this place, stay stable in grace and peace. God's the great benefactor. You're the beneficiary. He's for you, not against you. The peace that comes with that. Stay stable in that. Walk in that. I think the invitation of the opening in Galatians, aside from setting, sets the tone for all the things that, why are you adding this to this? This is, look at the full sufficiency of this. The invitation is to marvel at the wonder of grace and peace. That is God's will for us extended in Christ Jesus. There's a lot going on. Grace is the favorable disposition of God towards you. Grace is the disposition of God towards you. Grace is the gift that is given in Christ Jesus. Given for you, given for me. Grace is the dance that we're invited to participate in. Giving gratitude and honor and glory back to God. Holy Spirit is the one that hums the tune. we just got to learn to, to stay in step. Transform from glory to glory. I've said it before. I look at my 30-year-old self and my 20-year-old self. And I go, man, I do look forward to seeing my 50-year-old self. Because there's this journey of growing more wholesome. And I hope that's your journey too. Why is that? It's the faithfulness of God. That the one that begun the good work in you is faithful to complete it. Oh man, but I've never done the Enneagram. I don't know what number I am. It doesn't, doesn't matter. As long as you've done Myers. No, no, you don't need to do any of that. They're all good and they have their place. Every tool, every effort we make to develop and to grow is healthy and appropriate and proper. But it's the grace of God working in us that truly transforms. The great benefactor, and you and I the beneficiaries, all we have to do is say yes. All we have to do is say yes. What are you saying yes to in Jesus? He's saying yes to forgiveness. Yes to mercy. Yes to infinite loving kindness. Yes to God's warm embrace. Yes to acceptance. Yes to peace. Yes to the Spirit of God working and healing and mending and restoring and putting you back together. Yes to the life of Christ as your own. They're not exactly bad things. These are, these are good things to say yes to. Yes to Jesus who describes himself like this in Matthew chapter 11. This is the one we say yes to. We say yes to the one who says, Come to me. All of you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, how am I? I am gentle and lowly of heart. 
You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We say yes to the one who says, I am gentle and lowly. And if Christ is this full revelation of God, what do we say about God? We say God is gentle and lowly. His disposition is towards you. He is loving kindness. So in Christ we're invited to enter a dance of grace. But the, the dance is not complicated or confusing. It's not the foxtrot or the quick step or the tango. It's not, it's not some complicated dance. It's just a gentle waltz. But, but, but you say, I've tried to waltz and that's actually harder than you, than you think. It's true. Often we imagine ourselves to be too out of step with Jesus to really come to Jesus. We're too out of step with God to really come to God. Well, what we think we do is we'll sort ourselves out in our own strength to a certain degree, then we'll be ready to come to God. Then we'll be ready. We're too out of step. It doesn't work like that. Too much moving against the flow of Christ's wishes to come to Christ. It's like, no, 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 no. The, the, to be against the flow of Christ's wishes is the moment to come to Christ and discover that you're right in tune with Christ's wishes. Let me, I had to read the next one. I can't. Preach it, I have to read it. It's too good. When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. We tend to think that when we approach Jesus for help in our need and mercy amid our sins, that we somehow detract from him, lessen him, impoverish him. Yet Christ's heart is not drained by our coming to him. His heart is filled up all the more by our coming to him. What is that? That is grace and peace. That's, that's grace and peace. I'm too much going against the flow. No, that's the moment to come to Christ and discover that that's the very flow. What is the, he came to heal the sick. Oh, no, I need to sort a few things out and I'll really be. No, 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 no. Not impoverished when we come in our brokenness. He's, that's the thing that puts the smile on the dial. Is another one. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Jesus is accessible. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself to him. It's all he needs. Indeed, it's the only thing he works with. Does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. That's what he came to heal. What's that? That's grace and peace. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? You've got something you can add to that? Something that somehow makes that better? This is, that's as good as it gets. Hebrews 4, because we were going to do Hebrews, but we didn't, but we need some Hebrews. I was going to do Hebrews. What I liked about Hebrews was that Hebrews, and it's kind of like craft beer, but that was all a big, it was a big tangent. And I was like, no, come back. Just come back. Come back to Galatians. Hebrews 4. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has entered into heaven. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. What's our confession? Our confession is that the grace and the peace that God gives us, offers us, brings to us in Christ Jesus is fully sufficient. That in the cross and in the resurrection, Christ defeated sin and death, has reconciled us to God. It's mended and healing and is putting this world back together. Let's hold fast to that confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet did not sin. Sin is that failure to represent faithfully what God is. Sin is that failure of worship. Tempted as we are, but yet never once did Christ fail to represent what God's like. Never once did Christ fail to bring faithful worship to God. Faithful worship, faithful representation and all things. So let us come boldly to the throne of grace. More literally, you could say, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. You could say that. Come boldly to this throne of grace. Boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy and will find grace to help us when we need it most. What is that? That's grace and peace as well. That's what grace and peace is. Thomas Goodwin has a book called The Heart of Christ. And he writes regarding this passage here. And he goes, this passage here? He says, this is the best passage to illustrate the disposition he says to illustrate the the gracious disposition and tender affection of god in christ for us the gracious disposition and tender affection of god in christ for us he writes about this passage that this passage is where you uh is to put your hand upon the chest of god and feel christ's heart beating for you what's that that's grace and peace Our natural inclination, I think, so often tells us that Christ is with us when we're at the top of our game. When we've made a really good effort over the last few months. When we're in March and we're still on track with our Bible reading plan for the year kind of thing. That, that's when our natural disposition is that Christ is with us in those moments when we're, we're making our best efforts. It's like, no, 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 no that's... That's not the grain. That's not the flow. Christ is with us in the low points, in the brokenness, in the anguish. And we come to him, we discover that in coming, we've stepped right into the very flow of God's love for us. It's in our weakness that Jesus is with us. When I'm weak, he is strong. Benefactor that extends his hand to us, invites us to know grace and peace, for he is grace and peace. That's grace and peace. That's the good news of the gospel. That's always that little bit better than you've just realized. Grace and peace of God. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to what? According to? According to the will of God our Father. And then, well, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Just to return the gratitude to the benefactor. All right, let's stand together. We're going to close with communion. If you're visiting with us, we've got a table here at the front, one at the back. The invitation to gather at the Lord's Supper is always an invitation to come and to receive grace and peace. 
We, we partake in bread and wine and we receive grace and peace each time we do that. If we want to, if we're open to that, if we're saying yes in that moment. I mean, you can go through the motions and miss 